After the near-total destruction of Jewish life and cultural centers in Europe, American Jewry had become the largest Jewish community in the world and had begun to integrate successfully into American life. As suburbs blossomed on the outskirts of cities, Jewish populations migrated with them and began to forge new, more modern Jewish-American identities and traditions. Hi, this is Julie Gray, and these are the true adventures of Gidon Lev. Israel, a great source of hope and pride for American Jews, with its kibbutz system of secular, earthy ideals of communal and agrarian life, was an attractive destination for many young American Jews, who saw an opportunity to be a part of history and join the movement of a renewal of Jewish life and thought. New arrivals were an important part of kibbutz life, injecting kibbutzim with a fresh energy and enthusiasm. Sparks of both romance and disagreement flew as different personalities encountered one another in such an intense, exhilarating environment. In fall 1963, a vivacious, red-headed American woman arrived on Kibbutz Hazarea. Naomi had come to Israel with her identical twin sister, Paula, and the two decided to live on different kibbutzim to foster more independence from one another. While the two had grown up with Jewish cultural traditions like celebrating Passover and Hanukkah, Theirs was a secular home. Naomi and Paula had heard much about Israel through a family friend and, after much discussion, decided to take a gap year ahead of college. They were part of a wave of American youth who headed to Israel in the 1960s to explore their Jewish roots. The two energetic young Americans had come from the rural, foggy coast of Northern California and were fresh out of high school. Being part of a kibbutz, which was such a radical social experiment, and being so far from home was strange and exciting. For Naomi, the culture of kibbutz Hazarea was quite an adjustment. The kibbutz founded by the German Werkleute movement in 1936 was known for its yekas ways, intensely ordered and disciplined. For Gidon, this environment was perfect. One of Guidon's passions was Israeli folk dancing, which he had learned and taught in Canada and continued to teach at Hazorea, and for years afterward. He was a nimble dancer and loved the feeling of camaraderie and the raised spirits of the dance. Plus, it was a great way to meet the young ladies. Though he had met and dated other young women, Guidon was smitten by Naomi's lively, open, warm American personality. It was our read-aloud time. I glanced tentatively at Guidon, as I always do on sensitive subjects, to gauge his response. Say that I was infatuated with her, Guidon said from his usual spot on the couch. Though he had met and dated other young women, Guidon was infatuated with Naomi's lively, open, warm American personality. I continued to read aloud. Naomi and I married each other in a kibbutz, in kibbutz ceremony in 1964 together with three other couples. And at the time, we felt very much committed to each other. But Naomi was young, only 19 years old. And though I was 10 years older, I was still very closed up emotionally and really not able to take the leap of hope and trust that a loving marriage requires. Gidon wrote at length about how he and Naomi went to Masada, the legendary Herodian fortress in the Judean desert that overlooks the Dead Sea. King Herod had four palaces in the Holy Land, and the one atop Masada was just one of them. 
The other three palaces were in Jerusalem, in the desert outside of Jerusalem, and Caesarea, north of Tel Aviv, on the sea. Masada is an awe-inspiring site, rising out of the desert like a huge mesa, with commanding views for miles in all directions. It's a good place for a fortress. Masada is a fascinating archaeological site and the subject of much study, most famously because of the Roman siege of Masada in 72-73, to Common Era, during which the Romans built a ramp and a battering ram to finally access the Jewish rebels who had fled to safety there. The Romans came up empty, but were stirred when they gazed upon the bodies of the 960 men, women, and children who had killed themselves rather than be captured. What we have is a story by a historian called Josephus Flavius. And the thing about it is everyone wants to know, does he exaggerate? Does the story have proofs? Can we prove the elements? Well, one of the problems is that this is really the best story we have, but it's because it's the only story we have. This is my friend, Laura Nelson-Levy. She's been a tour guide in Israel for over 35 years. The $64,000 question. Did this event, <laughs> this mass suicide at Masada, happen or not? Well, Julie, the first answer, of course, is I wasn't there. I think what's important to look at is, one thing is, what evidence is there of the story? Well, we know that there's a siege wall, one of the largest, most complete siege walls with towers, something Josephus describes, and with clear evidence of about six or seven army camps surrounding and across from Masada itself. What's also been found is an artificial mound that's referred to the Roman as the Roman ramp. How do we know it's artificial? Because you can still find pieces of ancient wood on a ramp that clearly was built on top of a natural slope of the mountain. And Josephus told us all the details. 963 people, the 10,000 Jewish slaves built it, 15,000 Romans surrounded and bring up their, their Roman weapons of battering rams and so forth. Does he exaggerate his numbers? Probably. But is the essence of those facts there? They are indeed. Today at Masada, there's an air-conditioned tramway that whisks visitors straight to the top. But that wasn't built until 1971. When Gidon and Naomi visited, they had to set off at 4 a.m. to avoid the heat of the day, bring plenty of water, and navigate the narrow and dangerous hike up the snake path, which gains 980 feet in elevation. In the 1960s, there were extensive excavations in conjunction with Hebrew University and led by famed Israeli archaeologist Igal Yadin, who also just happened to be the former military chief of staff and the head of operations in the 1948 war. It was Yadin who greeted Gidon and Naomi when the two reached the top, no doubt breathless, sunburnt, dirt-smeared and sweaty. Yadin warmly welcomed the young couple, who were stunned to meet such a famous figure. Yadin then remarked on the weather and assumed the two were part of the dig at the cistern. Gidon and Naomi nodded in the affirmative, sidled away to pretend to be archaeologists, and then melted into the dun-colored rocks along with everybody else. They spent a few hours looking around before hiking back down and camping under the stars near the lush waterfall in pools of the oasis of En Gedi on the shores of the Dead Sea. 
This is my favorite part of Israel, out in the desert with its jagged, shadowy mountains and hues of gold, taupe, peach, and heather layered over one another in endless shades. The dry heat feels like a weight on your head, which compared to the soupy humidity of the coastal plains in Israel is a relief. The Dead Sea is the lowest place on Earth at minus 1,421 feet below sea level. Subsequently, the air there is rich in oxygen. The lake is hypersaline, which means that it is so salty that you bob to the surface and stay there. When they say not to get even a drop of the water in your eyes, they mean it. Don't ask me how I know this. The famous Dead Sea mud is not found just anywhere, only at particular spots of the lake. In other areas, you have to walk up to a quarter of a mile over desiccated mud and large stretches of crusty white salt to reach the water's edge. I have found, through trial and error, that entering the water backward, behind first, and thinking of yourself as sitting in a chair is the best way to be in the Dead Sea, with its warm, silky water and stunning views of the Judean mountains on one side and the Jordanian mountains on the other. In fact, the border between the two countries runs right down the center of the lake. At night, the glittering lights of small Jordanian villages are visible, strung along the mountains and going down toward the water. In 1964, when Gidon and Naomi enjoyed their outing, the level of the sea was undoubtedly higher than it is today. For the past few years, the Dead Sea has been shrinking at an alarming rate, and there are, resultingly, sinkholes on the road that surround it, a subject of great ecological concern in Israel and in Jordan, and among the drivers of cars. For many years, there has been a plan to replenish the waters of the Dead Sea by connecting it to the Red Sea, which is about 100 miles to the south. This plan, however, would require the cooperation of the governments of Israel and Jordan, cost approximately $1 billion, no part of which Jordan was willing to pay, and thus far has not happened, although news of it turns up in the paper every couple of years with optimistic reports to the contrary. Hidon and Naomi also traveled to the Negev Desert to see the craters in that sprawling, parched moonscape that occupies the majority of southern Israel. Crater is a little misleading, sounding more like a place where a bomb or a meteor made impact. These craters were caused by erosion due to rising and falling geological rifts, ancient seas, and millions of years. Israel has one large crater, Maktesh Ramon, and two smaller ones. Standing on the edge of the 24-mile-long Maktash Ramon is an almost spiritual experience. Hawks swoop and circle in the silent blue sky, and the jagged, ochre, rocky desert descends about 1,640 feet to the bottom. It was here in the Negev, at one of the smaller craters, that Gidon and Naomi had an argument that was very emblematic of their relationship in many ways. Gidon had, quote, misjudged the distance and hardship and hadn't brought enough water, end quote. Naomi, by then pregnant, was very upset. To put it mildly, Gidon scrawled on the side of the page. I could only imagine I would have been pretty upset too. When it came to his relationship with Naomi and the tragic direction it took, I understood why Gidon had not wanted to think more deeply about this period of time. It's painful to dig into the past. 
Back in 1964, the year they married, although Naomi and Gidon enjoyed a strong physical attraction and shared many outings and hikes, the tension between the two was already evident. Naomi's young, searching, independent spirit, coupled with this overwhelming new experience, crashed right into the rock-solid determination of Gidon, a fully committed kibbutznik. Naomi was trying to find herself by working in the nursery, orchards, and the fields in a new country very, very far from home. Gidon was no longer a shy, out-of-place boy. He had become a focused, hard-working man, not especially blessed with the sensitivity and emotional intelligence required in a marriage. Neither understood the past traumas of the other, nor did they discuss them. In that time and place, on a kibbutz after the war, and just before the swinging 60s, looking back was not as important as looking forward. Now, decades later, Gidon had the luxury of looking back, and I could see small changes in his emotional landscape. He'd done something quite courageous and transformative, really, in the process of writing this book. He allowed me to root around in and interrogate his memories. In his willingness to do that, he was revealing himself. Yet still for a person who joked about the Yekka environment on Hazorea, Gidon was most decidedly himself a Yekka. I mean by that, his penchant for obscuring emotions in favor of details was formidable. Though I knew it was one of the most significant events of his life, I had to go through pages and pages of kibbutz and work details to unearth Gidon's writing about the birth of his first child, Maya, in 1965. On the evening before Pesach, Passover, during the harvesting of the winter wheat, the entire kibbutz went out into the fields, including Nomi, who was due to give birth at any moment. I wasn't sure it was a good idea, but she was a hard worker, and she insisted. On our way back from the fields, we stopped in the dining hall and went to the kitchen to fetch something to eat. I heard a scream. Oh God, my water just broke. I got the kibbutz jeep, ran for the bag, and we were off to the hospital in Afula. The contractions were coming at five-minute intervals, and as soon as we arrived, the hospital staff took charge. They told me to go sit in the hall and not to worry. I was so excited, I could hardly believe it was happening. In the early hours of the morning of April 18th, 1965, Maya was born. A beautiful baby girl. It was a great joy for both of us, and I loved to participate in taking care of our lovely little baby. At that time, Nomi and I lived up on the hill, quite a distance from the baby house. So at night, I would go down and change diapers and feed Maya the night bottle so that Nomi could get a good night's sleep. My mother came to visit us. It was her first grandchild. And I remember we went together to a lovely swimming place in Bet She'an Valley for a picnic. Babies under three months old weren't supposed to leave the kibbutz, so we snuck Maya out in a cardboard banana box. <laughs> my first child, my daughter Maya, was born in a Fula hospital. And I was so overwhelmed with joy. 
and a little bit of sadness. Joy that I had a first child. Sadness because my father and the rest of my family couldn't be part of this joyous moment. It was yet another oppressively hot summer day when Gidon took me to visit the kibbutz where he, Naomi, and Maya moved to in 1966, when Maya was just a baby. Kibbutz Zikim is nestled on the Mediterranean coast, about six miles south of the seashore city of Ashkelon, where archaeological digs have revealed carbon-dated evidence of a Neolithic settlement almost 10,000 years old. The city was once a seaport, wrested from the Canaanites by the Philistines, the arch-enemy of the Israelites. Eight miles north of Ashkelon lies another ancient Philistine seaport, today the largest seaport in Israel, Ashdod. This is said to be the place where the Philistines, having previously captured the legendary Ark of the Covenant in battle, then hid the cursed object until a plague of mice and epidemic of tumors beset them, after which they promptly returned the Ark to the Israelites. Outside of Indiana Jones, maybe, nobody knows where it is to this day. Established in 1949 by Romanian Holocaust survivors and members of Hashomer Hatzair, Kibbutz Sikim borders the Gaza Strip. The day Gidon and I visited, the barrier wall and buildings in Gaza City were just visible through the shimmering heat and thick smoke. As Gidon and I arrived at the kibbutz, firefighters were everywhere trying to beat back the flames. Thousands of acres of land were burning throughout southern Israel as Palestinians in Gaza protested their terrible conditions by sending kites and balloons tied to rudimentary incendiary devices and flammable materials over the barrier wall to set the fields afire. In a cycle as regular as the seasons, the country was on fire once more. Zikim, which means sparks, was aptly named. The name came from a quote by Alexander Pushkin, quote, from sparks shall come a flame, end quote. Pushkin had no idea just how true this could be figuratively and literally. As Gidon and I toured the quiet, smoky kibbutz, it was clear to me that the place had seen better days. The grass was lumpy and dry, and evidence of its nearness to rockets coming from Gaza was everywhere. Emergency bunkers dotted the kibbutz, where reinforced concrete protected communal buildings. While previously an agricultural kibbutz, today's Ikim is semi-privatized and manufactures mattresses. The dairy where Guidon worked is still in full use, though, and we found our way to it by the pungent odor. I refused to get out of the car. This was not the first dairy Guidon had taken me to. During such visits, he beamed with pride as he viewed the cows calmly chewing their cuds or lined up at milking machines while I tried to be interested, meanwhile thinking that this was gross, stinky, and inhumane. Be that as it may, whenever we're near a dairy barn in Israel, Gidon pulls over and wistfully takes it all in. Very often, he is recognized and greeted with backslaps and shouts by barn workers who remembered him from his younger days on and off the kibbutz as a dairyman and later as a milk tester of hardworking repute. In 1966, when Naomi, Gidon, and Maya relocated to Zikim, the border between the kibbutz and Gaza was marked simply by signs. No fence or walls had yet been built. 
The kibbutz, established only 17 years earlier, had planted avocado, mango, and loquat trees and built one of the most modern dairy barns in Israel. They also raised chickens for the local market. Because Hashomer Hatzair was so left-leaning, Gidon told me, Kibbutz Sikim was jokingly known as, quote, the last outpost with a red flag before Cairo, end quote. Nomi, little Maya, and I arrived there in the fall of 1966 as a part of a group of 10 members from Hazorea to help Zikim add more cultural activities. The members of the kibbutz welcomed us very warmly and went out of their way to make us feel at home there. There was not a single area of this kibbutz's life that did not need help, and we had all come to do just that. Whereas in Hazorea, everything was well-established, organized, and order-ruled supreme. Here in Zikim, everything was, to put it mildly, fluid. For example, let us say Nomi was scheduled to work in the kitchen, starting at 6.30 a.m. At 6 a.m., the work manager, Sadrana Voda, responsible for assigning work duties for the members, would rush to our room and inform Nomi that he was sorry and -and so-and-so felt ill and couldn't work in the children's house, so she had to go help out there instead. True, this kind of a situation can happen anytime and any place, but when this occurs, very often it is disruptive and causes a lot of tension among the members. Zikim needed help in all areas of their communal life be it in the workforce, administration, cultural activities, and social problems. And we readily tried to do the best we could. Within a week of our arrival, I started a weekly folk dance evening. Nomi and I both helped to plan and participate in cultural activities, such as organizing holiday celebration and Friday night Oneg Shabbat activities. For the two of us, it was challenging and felt as if we were starting anew, not only in general, but also in our personal relationship, which took a turn for the better. We felt good and were happy. After the War of Independence in 1948, kibbutzim bordering Arab land were reinforced and new ones established to help secure the borders. Zikim was just one such of these border kibbutzim, situated on the land of the depopulated Palestinian village of Harbiya. They weren't depopulated, they fled, Gidon interjected. Here we went again with this argument. I asked Gidon whether it ever struck him as odd that the kibbutz was located on a former Palestinian village, or whether the conditions in Gaza ever niggled at his conscience, with so many refugees crowded into a too small space, so near to the bucolic kibbutz. Gidon replied vehemently, I came to this country almost 60 years ago, and my idea of a country and Zionism and socialism and democracy and equality was at the top of my beliefs. I had no qualms about going into the army. I felt we got this piece of land, and I was prepared to defend and die for it. Okay, 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 I said, weighing whether to dwell on the subject. I knew that Gidon is a liberal thinker, and I knew that he came by his point of view the way we all did, through life experience. I decided it's just not worth beating Gidon over the head about not just the larger picture between Israelis and Palestinians, but also the proximity of Gaza to Zikim and what he should have been thinking about or doing, according to me. 
It's so easy to judge someone else for their past actions, inactions, or views. I wondered what I was doing in this red-hot moment to address the social issues of my time. On Kibbutz Hazareya, volunteers and college kids, Jewish or not, the practice of exchanging a temporary farming experience for room and board was not allowed unless they also signed up for the Alpan, Hebrew learning program. Zikim, however, did not have this requirement and was generally a more relaxed, socially engaging environment. In some cases, enduring, lifelong friendships were made. Gidon didn't know it yet, but some of these friendships would later prove invaluable to him. Life in Zikim was less rigid, less constrained than it had been in Hazorea. It was more relaxed, perhaps at times too much so. Our sweet little daughter Maya found herself in the baby house together with three other babies her age, 9 to 11 months old. And she seemed happy and content with a very devoted and experienced baby nurse looking after her and the other babies from morning to 4 p.m. At four in the afternoon, having showered and cleaned myself up, I went to the baby house and brought Maya home to our room. If I was not able to do so, Nomi went. We spent the next three and a half hours together, playing, taking walks, or whatever. It was the time to be together as a family, and we loved it. From time to time, we even took walks to the cow barn. And Maya would help me feed the newborn calves, who hardly knew how to eat or drink their milk. After a few months, we so enjoyed the more relaxed atmosphere in Zikim that Nomi and I decided to make it our permanent home, and we became full voting members of the kibbutz. I had my work cut out for me in the dairy barn, where I was in charge of raising the calves while Nomi found her work in the expanding avocado, mango, and loquat orchards hard but rewarding. One day, Gidon and I took a break from working on the book and went to Mini Israel, a kitschy theme park that boasts a walkable map of the country of Israel in miniature. By the look of the empty parking lot, we were not in for a treat. We trooped through the byways and pathways, peering at Mini Haifa, Mini Akko, and Mini Jerusalem. The kibbutz section was big, probably the most developed, with tiny orange orchards and barns with mooing cows and little people dancing the hora. There were motion sensors, so the music or other sound effects suddenly blasted out of the bushes. The tolling of bells, folk music, the call of the muezzin, even the plonk, plonk of Matkot, the Israeli paddleball game played on the beach in Tel Aviv. Decked out in his Batman hoodie, Gidon was some distance behind me, peering like Gulliver down upon the country of his dreams, now rendered in chipped painted plastic and carved styrofoam. I thought, how insensitive of me to have brought him here to view the country that Gidon fought so hard to live in and be in after all he's gone through as a roadside attraction. How awful, yet how wonderful and weird this whole book must be for Gidon, to be walked back through his life like it was a theme park. The Holocaust trauma, the kibbutz world, the marriage experience, the Six-Day War. I went to Gidon and took his arm. Let's get going. He looked at me brightly. I'm just amazed by this. 
he pointed to the teeny model of Masada. Look, the cistern is right there. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe and follow for more. And don't forget to leave a review. If you'd like to read The True Adventures, it is available everywhere you buy books online. To learn more about Gidon Lev, go to www.thetrueadventures.com and be sure to follow Gidon on social media. Thanks to our sound designers, Andrew Macht and Victoria Sampson. Music composed by Nigel Groom and Adi Goldstein. Toda Raba El Iran for being the voice of young Gidon. Special thanks to Laura Nelson Levy. If you'd like to reach out to Laura, you can find her details on the True Adventures website, www.thetrueadventures.com.